This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. I'm joined today by David Morris, Christy Harkin, and Will Foxley. The squad is all here and we are going to get you going on your crypto news for today, May 5th. I am Zach Seward. I'm starting the show. The story that we are talking about is the never-ending Elon Musk Twitter saga. The latest twist, Binance, Sequoia, a sovereign wealth fund, and a bunch of other rich people chipping in some money into uh, Elon Musk's quest to buy the social media platform of choice for news junkies and crypto users alike. This one, pretty crazy. $500 million from CZ at Binance to make himself be involved in Elon Musk's takeover bid of Twitter.com. Pretty crazy. Also, given the context here that CZ and Binance have been spending big to get themselves into the media industry more broadly. When we saw a big investment from Binance and Forbes, the storied publication that covers the business world. And now they're putting in a significant chunk of change into online, online discourse in the Twitter public square. So this one caught a bunch of people by surprise this morning. Everyone was kind of like, what? That's weird. More billionaires teaming up to take Twitter private. What is going on? And Binance being on that list, along with Larry Ellison and some other notable folks, certainly caught the eyes of the crypto commentary. So I'm going to toss this straight to David for his thoughts. David, interesting squad forming here. What's your initial take? Yeah, one thing that's notable here is at least the table that I looked at, Binance isn't just on there. They're pretty high up there. I think they were the fourth or fifth largest contributor to this project. And yeah, the, the sort of push for media. Um, I think that there, there are two things that I would say. The first is that I'm quite curious about this from a, I guess, investing financial perspective. I think there's a lot of consensus that, that Musk is poised to overpay for Twitter compared to what its actual you know, results have been in recent years. I think there's a broad consensus that his plans for any changes to Twitter are at this point at least pretty half-baked, and, and it doesn't necessarily seem like he's entirely thought things through from a business perspective. He has personal and, I think, political interests that he's pursuing here. So it's interesting to see all this money coming in to support him that, you know, if you give somebody $500 million, it's not just because you like them personally. So it does suggest some faith in his vision that I think there has been relatively little evidence of in hard money terms when it comes to this deal. The second thing I'll say is, again, to maybe drill down a little bit more on the weird conflicts of interests here, because obviously Binance wants to create an environment where promotion of crypto assets is easier, I guess, broadly, you could say, and where there's more opportunities for positive coverage. That seems to have been some element of their strategy behind Forbes. The curious thing here is that Twitter is already a great place for promoting uh bad crypto projects as well as good ones. I'm not sure whether they have a real strategic axe to grind here. Maybe they just want to put a little bit of money behind the general idea of keeping things open at Twitter. I mean, notoriously, and people can pick up from here, but bots trying to shill crypto scams have been a presence on Twitter for most of its existence at this point, I think. And they don't seem to have figured out any way to convincingly deal with it. I don't think that's going to be high on Elon's list from what he's saying. And so maybe they're just willing to put down $500 million to back the status quo. I'm not sure. But Will, you're uh, nodding along. What are your thoughts on Twitter? Yeah, my first thought was trader liquidations actually went to a good place for the first time. So that's a pretty cool thing to see. 
Binance getting involved with this deal tells you about what Binance is trying to do going forward. They've been doing this regulatory hop for quite a while. Looks like they're going to set up some shop in Paris because Paris has been, or France in general, has been more open to crypto being in a, being like the place for Binance to land. And I think going forward, you're going to see like more investments for Binance, right? They need to do it because they've been chased around the globe jurisdictionally. They've had some issues and they need to capture things like Forbes, they need to capture things like Twitter. So it's a good investment for them. I think this is also like a counterpunch to what people expected with what happened with Jack Dorsey in Musk over the last few weeks. I think a lot of people were like, hey, maybe Jack Dorsey is going to be CEO again. He seems to have like some sort of deal with Elon here. Binance getting involved with this really tempers that expectation a ton. I think that first thought that people had on Twitter about Jack Dorsey maybe getting involved again was like completely wrong to begin with. But seeing Binance get involved on the cap table here and Sequoia actually as well, since they have a larger crypto wing, tells you that, hey, no, there's going to be a lot more players involved. And Elon Musk, obviously with the Doge play and the Bitcoin play, he's not as strict of maximalist as Jack Dorsey. Uh, Zach, I'll give it up to you. Yeah, I think the Dorsey angle is interesting because A16Z was also involved and they've had some very public spats. I think it was Dorsey and some of the uh, some of the members of the A16Z uh, investor group. I think it was Chris Dixon, maybe Mark Andreessen. They had some, some I don't know, low-key Twitter beef going. So the fact that uh, A16Z is sort of poking at that and getting back at Jack, I guess, and also, you know, investing and maybe also bringing their crypto savvy to this project going forward is something that's pretty funny also to watch. But Max Entertainment on this story continues to unfold. Christy, tossing it to you. Real quick, the one thing, and that's to follow up on what you said about the crypto angle, is that last month, CZ tweeted that Musk should privatize it, issue a token, decentralize it. And I guess he's just sort of throwing some money maybe at that angle, hoping that we're, you know, with Elon Musk being more involved in Twitter, that it's going to actually have somebody at the helm who might look seriously at doing that. And who knows, maybe use it, <laughs> use crypto to get rid of the bots and do things. I don't know. Uh, like the whole email I mean, that's one thing, thing they could be using crypto for. That is that. one thing they could use it for. So yeah. So I think I'm next. So I might as well just keep going with this. Stablecoin land. So going to another character in the space, Justin Sun. So Tron has released its algorithmic stablecoin called Decentralized USD or USDD on Thursday. And generally, the the attitude has been sort of like, eh, it's, you know, Tron doing Tron. It copied its white paper, essentially, from Ethereum, and now it's copying its decentralized algorithmic stablecoin from, what was it? Luna. So it's a Luna clone. It's jumping on the, the Luna bandwagon. And because it has, that has really done really well, uh, the Terra blockchain stablecoin UST has swelled to 18 billion from 2 billion. I mean, this is a big deal getting these algorithmic stablecoins out there and doing their thing and people are wanting to jump on that bandwagon. I think the whole copycat thing has really taken over the discussion and do we need another UST only with a different name? What do you think, David? Well, I think the more important question is whether we need one UST. I've spent a lot of time reporting about algorithmic stablecoins in general and UST specifically. And I remain, and I think a lot of people remain unconvinced that this is a system that is going to work. And on top of the question of whether or not it's going to work, because of its nature, it introduces a lot of systemic risk. And so having Tron come in and copy this 
and you know, Terra is already basically unregulated, but Tron is really unregulated. It will provide some diversity in terms of where the money is coming from. And that is almost extra worrying because this is global dark money, essentially, that could be flowing into this. To be clear, just to, to lay it out for people who aren't familiar, algorithmic stablecoin is basically you have one coin that is worth a dollar, and then you have another coin that is worth some amount of money that is both of them made up out of nothing. And then you burn the float token to generate the fiat matching token. And it's supposed to be set up in a way that that happens automatically. So you magically create a dollar with no backing. And no backing is, is key here. Now, throw it up to Zach really quick. And then I want to ask a question about what Justin Sun's been up to in, the, in between uh, his latest announcement and this one. But Zach, first. Let's put the algorithm stablecoin stuff aside. Too smart, too smart for my brain uh, today. But I do want to say I am extremely bullish on Justin Sun copycat stuff. Justin Sun copying stuff is some sort of <laughs> signal of like next stage adoption. He did this with Ethereum. He did this with USDT, Tether, uh, the asset-backed stablecoin. Like that became a huge deal on Tron. And everyone at the time was like, oh, he's just trying to chase the narrative, trying to chase the narrative, trying to do copycat. There is some sort of signal here when Justin Sun copies your stuff, something is about to kick into hyperdrive. And that I think is sort of like an interesting comment on where UST is within the crypto universe. Oh, okay, here's this dream of an algorithmic stablecoin, not backed by dollars sitting in a bank somewhere that a government can seize. And all of a sudden, all these other chains, be it Tron, be it Near, be it any other network, they're trying to get a piece of the action. They're trying to spin up USN. They're trying to spin up USDD. They're all trying to get this game. And I think it's sort of like this weird moment in which the idea of an algorithmic stablecoin may have kind of like hit the tipping point of whatever comes next. So interesting yeah. to see, but we need to do some analysis of like the Justin Sun copycat move and see what has happened following those decisions. So anyway, back to you, Dave. Yeah. Just, just very briefly, like my analysis is really simple. Like I, I consider it my job to be right. That doesn't mean listening to me is the right way to make money. Justin Sun embodies that entirely. I talked at some length a couple of years ago with a guy who worked closely with him on the BitTorrent integration. And at least according to those conversations, I mean, Justin Sun has effectively zero technical understanding of any of this. Maybe that clears his mind. Maybe he can just look at the big picture and participate in the lowbrow hive mind that actually generates money going to a lot of these things. So yeah, Zach, I, I think that <laughs> following his instincts, uh, as long as you understand that these are not necessarily sustainable, I mean, even Tron itself is not a buy and hold, I'll say, and you ride the wave, then maybe there is something there. Yeah, someone needs to correct me here, but not too long ago, Justin Sun was appointed to some remote island in the Caribbean's like, I don't know, their like legislative team or something Grenada. like that, so that he has like diplomatic immunity. So this, like, I thought he was done with crypto, honestly. I thought he was like set in sail, enjoying a high life. And now he's back copycatting it. But Zach, correct me where I'm wrong there. He's an ambassador to Grenada, I believe. And he insists upon <laughs> being called His Excellency. So if you could please follow suit and refer to him as His Excellency, Justin Sun, that would be fantastic. I'll do that for you. Hey, can I just put a button on that real quick? Which is the reason he is an ambassador from Grenada and the reason that he has a passport and citizenship in Grenada is that he appears to have been detained by the Chinese Communist Party at some point about two or three years ago, and perhaps given a fairly stern warning about certain of his activities. So whatever he's doing, I'm going to take a wild guess that he's not doing it from mainland China, but I am open to being corrected. On Can't that. stay away from the copycats. Lock in, stop Good them. Good stuff. Can't stop works them. For Let's you. do it.
open source. Here we go. All right, we're going to fork our way into the second part of this show. So Coinbase launched its NFT platform last week to a lot of fanfare. People are pretty excited about this, but it really hasn't panned out super well yet. There's a little nuance here that we'll get to in a second, but the headline is that Coinbase's NFT market didn't splash as well as people thought. There's only been about 900 transactions so far with the volume of about 73 Ether. That is compared to things like OpenSea, which see millions of dollars worth of volume over the same period with thousands of users. Coinbase has listed this in beta mode. So there's about 3 million people who are signed up for the platform and only a fraction of those people have been whitelisted to be able to use it. So that can probably account for most of the low volumes and most of the low transaction counts on here. We will see if this thing really pops once Coinbase opens it up altogether. But this headline does add some value to the growing concerns that NFT markets are starting to slow down. There's been a few reports on Wall Street Journal and elsewhere saying that like, hey, we've noticed that things are starting to not pop as well as they used to. That does run against some nice charts that we see on like Nansen and elsewhere that show NFT volumes are actually like pretty steady for the last period. But I think some people are looking at some of these bigger token projects and these bigger NFT projects that just aren't getting bids. They're not selling the artwork with where they used to sell. Zach, I'll throw it up to you and get your take on this. Yeah, I mean, I think there was that, you know, that Wall Street Journal report definitely like raised a lot of eyebrows because the data seemed a little sus. And like there's been subsequent looking at like the on-chain reporting that suggests that no, the NFT market is not dead. It is not flatlining. It is active. It may be active with wash traders and other dubious actions. But if you look on chain, there is activity in the NFT market. I think the question here is how many marketplaces is too many marketplaces and whether or not there's going to be consolidation around one or two winners or if there really is going to be this plethora of available options to anyone with an Ethereum wallet who can go from OpenSea to Coinbase Marketplace to whatever, to whatever, to whatever. And it seems like maybe that pie isn't as big as it was initially thought. If you go to this website, you have to connect your Ethereum wallet. It could be a Coinbase wallet. It could be a MetaMask wallet. It doesn't matter. It's like a similar dynamic to how OpenSea works. Other exchanges have pursued more like you know exchange account models, and maybe they're seeing more success in driving volumes. But as it relates to where the NFT trading activity is right now with you know your wallet browser plugin, it seems like the activity is still living on OpenSea, right? Especially on Ethereum. You obviously have NFTs on other chains on Solana. You know, you have Magic Eden, which sort of is kind of establishing itself as the OpenSea of Solana. But the fact that Coinbase, the biggest player in the room, stepped in with an open marketplace for anyone with a wallet to connect to and basically saw crickets is really an interesting comment, right? The sort of the, uh, the frenzy, the FOMO, the activity, the excitement may not really be there as much as it had been, I don't know, six months, 12 months ago. And maybe that's what these uh, less than stellar rollout numbers are suggesting. Whether that means those less than stellar rollout numbers are going to continue into the medium and, and distant term, time will tell. Who knows? Maybe we're in the early innings of winning this marketplace war. But right now, I think it's just like, how many players is too many players. And at launch, it seems like the Coinbase marketplace may be one too many player. But I'm going to throw it back to Will for his thoughts. Yeah, quick comment, and I'll give it up to David. Thinking last year when Coinbase listed, that was also in April, and the whole crypto market fell apart. Now they've launched this product in April. I'm wondering what's going to happen next. It's coming a little, little concerned. But like Coin ticker didn't do super well last year. It died pretty quickly. And since then, it's been down a considerable amount. So maybe something similar happens. I don't know. Actually, Christy, you want to chime in? I'll uh, I think that up. the Coinbase curse does sound kind of interesting. What I kind of was curious about was 
the social media focused marketplace that it seems to want to be capturing as well, where it's trying to build a community. And I don't know if that's something maybe people just weren't ready for, or they didn't care about. They're just like, give me my NFT. I don't feel like having conversations with people. But then maybe that is the play that will work for the normies coming into it. You know, a lot of we get a lot of new people onboarded into crypto in general through Coinbase. So this community aspect may be really an interesting slow burn, perhaps, for what is the market they're actually trying to capture. Right now, they are opened up to people who subscribed in advance. So presumably people who were already into the space, into NFTs, who in the meantime, while they were waiting, went and got their NFTs on other platforms. So you've got the first mover advantage happening on other platforms. And now they have to catch up. I mean, clearly these people were already interested in NFTs and they're like, well, screw this. I'm not going to wait around indefinitely for my turn. And they just went and did their mm. stuff elsewhere. So now they they're opening it up, having a few people. I don't think that's a bad idea because it'll help them work out any kinks and iterate on what has been working and maybe what can work better as they begin to attract a larger crowd. So I'm not not optimistic for Coinbase on this. I just, well, just, I think it's just one of those. We're going to have to wait and see if they pull in the new crowd on their new platform. So David? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to piggyback on the comments about first mover advantage, because I think that's really the the overriding story here. And I, in general, and this is from watching them for years and years, I have a very low opinion of Coinbase management. They've sort of demonstrated weakness in two places here. One is, I don't believe they've sent out like a press release saying we've only got 900 transactions, but they've clearly mismanaged the rollout of this product. If they have stories, they're putting that in the headline. And, you know, I, I think that we've done a fine job of hedging that. But uh, I mean, when you have something that's in beta, and then you're reporting numbers that can be misperceived. Obviously, there's an added problem here because this data is coming from the chain, not from their internal systems. So they can't like hold it back. But it does seem like they could have managed the messaging a lot better there. But I do also think that like second and much more substantively, I mean, it is wild that it is 2022 and they're just launching their NFT platform now. I mean, the buzz around this stuff started two, maybe even three years ago. Um, and the fact that they didn't have their eye on the ball is incredible. I mean, if you think about Coinbase's business model, they have been focused increasingly on going to the bottom of the barrel on tokens. That's what they've spent the last year doing. People don't care about tokens right now. Like the mass market for crypto, to the extent that there is one, the buzz is around NFTs. The buzz has remained around NFTs at the retail DGEN level. That's what people are speculating on. That's where the money's going. And they did not move fast enough. Full stop, period. Like, I, I think that they can grow from here, but they clearly did not deliver in a timely manner for this market. And the fact that they're in such a cyclical business and they're not able to execute in a timely fashion to match that cycle should be worrying if you're a long-term stockholder in Coinbase. I mean, this is an existential question for them. So if you're looking at Coinbase as a whole, this, this should be concerning, I guess, on a macro level. I guess I will go ahead and pick up, unless anybody wants to throw in a couple more comments on my story, which is, you know, we talk a lot about the business side of things, how the technology is evolving, where we might go from here. And sometimes it can feel like we lose track of why it all matters. And we see it pretty frequently. Now we have a really, really striking example here of PayPal deplatforming a couple of news sites who are small 
But I should emphasize very reputable news sites, one called Consortium and one called Mint Press. Consortium, I know they have had their decision reversed, so that's good news. But at least for a time, their payments were frozen and PayPal threatened to seize nearly $10,000 worth of payments that they had received. Now, these are outlets that are reporting, I think, information, particularly about the war in Ukraine, that contradicts certain mainstream narratives. To be clear, they are not fake news or propaganda platforms. These are serious reporters. Uh, one of the platforms, I believe, is associated with Chris Hedges, who's a Pulitzer Prize runner. And we've also seen, you know, this is the tail end of something that started way back in 2010 with WikiLeaks getting its PayPal service revoked, which would discredit the outlet and basically end Julian Assange's life, which is the way that that has played out. And so I think that this is why we need systems that cannot be censored because the U.S. State Department doesn't think it's in their strategic interest to have certain information available to the public, which is basically what this is. So that's the root of the story. Who wants to jump in? Hot topic. Well, Matt Taibbi is a legend from his early Russia days, exile.ru, if anyone is familiar with that. So he knows about sort of operating in environments in which financial freedoms are constrained and constricted. And I think this is a really important reminder as we look at some of these big issues that sometimes get lost in the buzz and in the hate and in the hype. These things are important in a increasingly digital world in which digital surveillance is the norm. And I think people are slowly starting to think about this stuff. And we saw this with the war in Ukraine. We see this with issues of sanctions. We see this with all these issues that are coming up. And we see, okay, maybe there is some value in these systems that operate outside of the purview of the state, are global by nature, and are internet native. And there is some value to that, that we can ascribe to these systems. And I think this is a fantastic example, right? You know, when we live in a world of almighty platforms, and you run afoul of those platforms, according to some rule of taste that may not be your own, it, it's problematic, right? You don't have to sympathize with what those people's views are, but you should be sympathetic to the bigger idea that it could exist and could be inflicted upon other groups that you may be sympathetic toward. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this neutral technology promises. And it's something that more and more people are kind of like thinking about, at least. I don't know about waking up to or embracing or seeing those benefits as outweighing some of the negatives that come along with this technology as well. But more people are starting to have those conversations. And I think this piece is a fantastic example of that. So, you know, David, kudos on you for highlighting it. I'm going to toss it straight to Christy. Yeah, I think that the thing that really grabs me about this is the idea of the decentralized versus the centralized. And what we saw, again, back in the day with, with WikiLeaks being deplatformed when it came to receiving funds, unless it was, you know, through crypto, versus something like PayPal, which is centralized, is that really these big platforms do ultimately have to adopt a, a cover your ass mentality. Um, they have to be careful that they are doing every bit of due diligence, even if it becomes extreme, because their very existence is also in jeopardy otherwise. Whereas if you have a decentralized system, there isn't that central point of failure by nature. On the other hand, it is extremely hard to administer. It can be extremely hard to administer. And there are on-ramps that ultimately, on-ramps and off-ramps to the cryptocurrencies themselves that are then the next point of failure that have to be dealt with. And as long as you're dealing with a fiat world, 
that is always going to be a problem. You can circumvent the big mm. players as much as you like, but in the end, unless you are transacting in those cryptocurrencies at like at the last mile, you're always going to run up against some sort of censorship. And I think that this attacks that this article highlights that. And while it does sort of emphasize the need for cryptocurrencies in order to stay online, the cryptocurrency crowd has to still examine that last mile problem. Um, mm -hmm. David, I saw your hand go back up. Well, well, my comments on that is that I think that this slides into a very specific slot where nothing that any of these outlets is doing could plausibly be claimed to be illegal in a way that would allow, for example, somebody to blacklist their Coinbase account for getting out of the crypto system. And, and there are a lot of, I think, applications that fall into that category where, yes, the, for certain things, the on and off ramps are a long-term issue for sure. But when you're talking about certain things that like are just unsavory, I mean, we've had a lot of issues with sex workers having problems using PayPal. You know, nothing that they're doing is illegal. It's just risky, I guess, is what you would say. And so people in that situation right now, I think that there are, could be stuff going on behind the scenes, but at least above board, I don't think they would have any issues getting that money to like a centralized exchange, depending on where they live. I did also want to, on the question of centralization versus decentralization, one comparison that does need to be made here is if you look back 20 years, you know, this is all of it is about the Ukraine war. That's kind of the root of the issue that, that they were dinged for. Go back 20 years and we're talking about the Iraq war. And people who are aware know that the New York Times played a major role in paving the way for that war, which turned out to be disastrous. That's a centralized news organization that is kind of part of this bigger power structure where we don't know exactly what happened, but effectively uh, the U.S. government was able to lean on them and tell them to report the things that they wanted reported. With the PayPal thing, we are seeing that there is a shift in where that pressure point exists. You can't just walk into the boardroom of the New York Times as the ambassador for whatever and tell them this, that, and the third. You have to now shut down all of these little nodes that are popping up on the internet. I mean, 20 years ago, you could get your news on the internet, but it wasn't everywhere. So now we have these smaller operations operating on very small budgets, but actually getting good content out there without the biases that are inherent in being this big centralized organization like the Times. And so if you're the State Department or the CIA or whoever you are who wants to exert your power, you now find the new lever. It's not the newsroom anymore. It's PayPal. Good note to close on. That's going to be it for the show today, but we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in to The Hash today. I'm Zach. That's David. He's killing it today. That's Christy. Go Canada. Go Leafs. It's Will. I think he's in Colorado or Texas or somewhere out west. Look at that guy. Oh, yeah. What a guy. All right. That's it for the show. Check us out on the podcast if you haven't yet. Coindesk Podcast Network. A lot of good stuff on that network. NLW is over there. We have the Daily Crypto News Roundup over there. And now we also have The Hash over there where you can listen to our spicy takes about the day's news. Check that out. Also, remember Consensus 2022 coming up. Just a matter of weeks. Five, I think, to be precise. Mm. And it's going to be fun, wild, informative. You don't want to miss it. Check that out. Coindesk Consensus. It's going to be good. That's it. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 